Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In our new series, Modern Parables, we're going to be taking Jesus' parables and transposing them into a modern setting. Each week, we will read a parable or narrative from Jesus' life in the Gospels, and then I will tell you a story. These stories will be fiction, just like those that Jesus told. The goal is for you to listen to the story and then draw meaning out of the story in the same way that Jesus expected his audience to draw meaning out of his parables. I hope you enjoy. Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet, so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But know this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today we continue on with our Modern Parables sermon series. And as you all know, if you've been here, I'll tell you what we're doing in case you haven't. But every week we're going to be going through a parable that Jesus told or a narrative from Jesus' life. And then we're going to transpose that parable into a modern setting. So each week I'll be telling you a story. This story will be fiction, very much like the ones that Jesus told, except I'll be basing my story on real people and real events, although you cannot research this story fact for fact like with my other sermons. Furthermore, I will give you no explanation as to what I want you to take away from my sermon. I simply leave you to take away what you feel it is telling you, and I know that is very frustrating, so if you really want to know more about it, just come afterwards. You can have some lunch and we'll talk about it. But the idea is, is that my story is supposed to help illuminate what Jesus is talking about when he tells his parable, because ultimately his parable is really what we want to drill down into and understand the best. So you ready for the story today? Yes. All right. Today's story, it begins six and a half miles off the coast of Maine on an island that is made entirely of granite. This island is called Boone Island. It's about two football fields long, and the only structure on this island is a lighthouse. The sole purpose of this lighthouse is to alert boats that are in the area that there is a big block of granite that they're about to run into that would cause them to sink off of the shore. Around 1800, the government decided that because so many boats had sunk from running into this particular island that they should erect a lighthouse. And they did this because around 1800, the economy of the United States, particularly New England following the Revolutionary War, was beginning to ramp up. And they wanted to make sure that boats could get in and out of the United States very safely so that commerce could go forward in a way that would be productive for everyone. So their first try at this, it took them three tries, by the way, to get this right. Their first try was 1800. They built it, and then it got washed away in the storm of 1804. The second try happened in 1812. That one lasted a bit longer till 1831, when again another storm came through and knocked it down. The last try was in 1855, and that 
is the lighthouse that exists on this island to this day. Now, this story is a lot less about the lighthouse itself and a lot more about the man who was tasked with keeping that lighthouse. You see, in our world today, there is no such thing any longer as a lighthouse keeper. That is a job that no longer exists because with electricity and with electric lights, they can now automate everything and it's no longer needed for a person to live at the lighthouse to make sure that the lighthouse is working. But during the 1800s, this was a very challenging job. In fact, one of the most challenging in the world because if you were gonna be a lighthouse keeper, you needed to have some real guff to make it through. It was a dangerous job. It was a job that required a lot from you. And you have to realize that most lighthouses were actually not on a little island in the middle of the ocean. Most lighthouses are located where? They're on the, the shoreline, right? The coastline. Because the entire point of having them there is so that if you're a boat coming in, you know that you're not going to run aground. And so if you're a lighthouse keeper living on the mainland, what can you do? Well, during the day, once you're finished with your job in the evening, you can go into towns and you can get provisions, you can conduct business, and most importantly, you can talk to other human beings. If you're on Boone Island, though, and you're the lighthouse keeper there, that is not an option for you. You are all by yourself, all alone, all the time. And on this island, you have to realize it's not like they had like a telephone where they could just pick it up and be like, hey, how you doing? It's nice to, you know, to be connected with people. It didn't work that way. They had no electricity. They had no running water. It was just you and this lighthouse. So you can imagine that it was probably very hard to get keepers to actually stay at this lighthouse. Most keepers lasted anywhere between a couple weeks to a few months before they said, I'm done and I'm leaving. A number of the keepers who went out and stayed on Boone Island actually went insane from the isolation. They had to be institutionalized. One such story about Boone Island is a couple, a husband and wife team, who volunteered to go out to keep this lighthouse. And everything was going fine until there was a storm. And in the midst of this storm, the husband died. And so this poor woman, she had to run up and down the 131 steps in this lighthouse to tend to the light, and then she'd run back down and tend to her husband's body. And eventually, she ran out of fuel. She personally could not do it any longer. And when the storm had subsided, some sailors went out to Boone Island, and they found this woman wandering back and forth on the shore, and she had gone insane. And so you can tell from stories like these that Boone Island had a very haunting reputation. But of all the keepers who went out to Boone Island, the one who lasted the longest was a man named Marcus Hanna. Marcus Hanna. Now, Marcus, he had grown up, he was a son of a fisherman, and during his youth, he had gone out on these big fishing expeditions with his father. And they were from Portsmouth, which is the very northern point of New Hampshire, right before you get into Maine. And so that's where they were from. They would go out into the Maine coast waters, and they would fish for halibut and mackerel and cod. And so they would bring all this back, and they made a pretty good living doing this. At the age of 20, Marcus married the daughter of a lighthouse keeper. They had two children together, a son and a daughter, and Marcus was poised to take over his father's business, which was very profitable. So he was looking to have himself a pretty good life. 
Two events, however, would intervene to prevent this plan from going forward. The first event that happened that changed the trajectory of his life was that a bout of yellow fever came over on boats from Europe. And it was from several boats, since there was an epidemic of it over there. It found its way over to the east coast of America. And some of it came into Portsmouth. And it spread through like wildfire. Hundreds of people died in the midst of this outbreak. Marcus was out on his boats with his people doing all the fishing in the midst of this. He was out for a number of weeks. He came back and the outbreak had subsided, and he found that his wife and his two children had been victims of this particular outbreak. The second issue that occurred in his life is that he found that his mother-in-law, who lived in York, which was literally six miles from Boone Island, that she had died as well in the midst of this yellow fever outbreak. And so now his father-in-law was all alone, the Boone Island Lighthouse had just been rebuilt, and they were looking for a keeper who would be willing to go out. Well, being an experienced keeper, he volunteered. Since he was no longer tethered to the mainland in any way, he said, I'll go out and do it. So he goes out, and he begins. And about six weeks later, Marcus goes out and visits him at the lighthouse to see how he's doing. And he finds that his father-in-law is on death's door. He, too, had contracted yellow virus, the, the yellow fever, and he was getting close to dying from it. And so they had a conversation with each other, and something that he told to Marcus is he said, I never had any boys, so I could never teach them how to do this particular job, and I always wanted to have a son who would take over for me. Would you be willing to take over the post here at the Boone Island Lighthouse? And being a man of great honor, Marcus Hanna said, yes, I would be happy to take over for you. And so when his father-in-law died, he took the body back, to York. They had the funeral. He moved, went down to Portsmouth, announced to his family he would be leaving the business, and he went back up and took the six-and-a-half-mile ride back out to Boone Island. Now, Marcus Hanna, it's not like he had ever done anything with the lighthouse before in his life. He had only heard little bits and pieces, and so he had a lot that he had to figure out. But he knew that the most important thing when you're dealing with a lighthouse is making sure that the light is on in the lighthouse, right? which he would come to find is actually a really challenging job. So when he got there, he went up and he looked at the lamp, and he realized that it's an oil lamp, of course, and he would have to carry two five-gallon drums of oil up the 131 steps every single day to make sure that the lamp was going to be able to last through the entire evening because it would run out of oil, he'd have to refill it. It required that much oil to make it burn. And on top of this, you have to realize that this is like a giant wick candle, which by itself is not bright enough in order for people to be able to see it. And so some French scientists came up with the concept of adding a lens to it. They're called Fresnel lenses, and this is what they look like. They would amplify the light so that people could see them. Now, there's different orders of these. The biggest one you're seeing is called a first order Fresnel lens, and it goes all the way down to an eighth order. The one inside of the Boone Island Lighthouse is a second order, which is the one next to it. It stood six feet, seven inches tall, and when it was lit, as long as it was clean, you could see it 23 miles away from Boone Island. That's how powerful the amplification was. I wanted to bring one of those in here for you all to see, but apparently I was told anyway that spending $75,000 on a sermon prop was not a good use of our money. <laughs> 
I disagreed, but hey, you know, I guess we'll go with the photograph. So that's what they look like. Uh, and as I said, one of his responsibilities, as he found out very quickly, was to keep this thing clean because there's sea salt in the air, and of course the sea salt coats over this, and so he's got to wipe it down every couple of days, and he would get complaints from sailors when he didn't wipe it down because they couldn't see the light as clearly. But it's not like he could just light this thing at night and go to sleep. He had to be there all night to watch it, not only to refill it, but also to watch for other boats. Because what he would see as boats were coming in is he would see these little flashes of light off in the distance. And these sailors, they were communicating with him using Morse code. And so they would flash at him, he would flash back, and he would give them directions to make it around Boone Island and the various rocks that were right there. But during the day, it's not like he could just get up and sleep it off, right? Actually, he had a lot of things he had to do because as you can see right here, he not only has to deal with the lighthouse, but he also has what's known as the keeper's quarters. He had to take care of the lighthouse and the keeper's quarters. So if anything broke, it was his responsibility to fix it. And being that it was literally right next to the ocean, you can imagine that stuff broke all the time. If a piece of wood in his house rotted out, he was the one who had to fix it. If there was something on the island like a piece of glass broke up in the lighthouse, which happened all the time from the wind, it would blow it, blow it in, or maybe a bird would run into it, he would have to go fix the glass. If the paint started to fade away, he would have to paint it. He had to do everything by himself. It was a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week kind of job. And What's crazy is, is that during a good week, when there weren't any storms, he would get about four hours of sleep a day. On a bad week, when there was a hurricane or something else coming through where he had to be up all the time, he could be up for 10 days straight with no sleep, just depending on how bad the storm was. But that wasn't even the most stressful part of his job. The most stressful part was getting these big cargo ships that are bringing wares and goods into the United States through these waters, because these cargo ships, they have these massive hulls that go way under the water, and of course, these are the types of ships that are going to run into rocks much more easily than other types of boats. And so, he's got to direct these people to get them past, and the people who are steering these ships, they are usually intoxicated because they've been drinking rum, which is the only thing that they would drink on these boats. So these People who are steering this thing, they're like slaloming through all of, these, all of these rocks, and he's trying to get them through. And you can imagine how stressful that would be to get through all of that. And he'd have two or three of these ships that were coming in every single day in the day, and then he'd have them coming in in the evening. And for the first 20 years that he was there, that was the rate of ships. It was a constant flow in that way. And in all that time, he was able to make it so that not a single one of those boats ended up crashing and sinking offshore. He was that good at his job that he was able to get them past. But then, in 1875, things began to change. Now remember, he starts in 1855. He starts at the age of 30 when he takes over for his father-in-law. And by 1875, he basically had 20 years of consistent traffic like that. But in 1875, things begin to change. And what happens is, in 1869, the United States constructs the first transcontinental railroad. Now, this railroad, of course, it's linking us from one side of the country to the next, but if you look close on there, you can see that 
where the ports are where the Transcontinental Railroad begins, it's further to the south than Maine. So the furthest north that a ship is going to come, if you want to get your goods in the United States, you want it to be on the Transcontinental Railroad because everything in the United States is getting transported by railroad at this point. So the furthest north you're going to go is Boston. From there, you're going to go south to New York. You're probably going to want it to be somewhere in Virginia or Maryland. So if you want your goods to sell, that's where you're going to be. So what does that mean for the economy of New England? Well, it's going to start to shrink quite a bit. And that's what happened beginning in 1875. He started seeing a slow drop-off. So remember, he's seeing two to three of these cargo ships every day and two to three ships at night. But by 1880, he's seeing two to three of those ships a week. By 1890, he's seeing two or three of those ships a month. And by 1900, he hasn't seen a cargo ship that was not local to that area of York in more than eight years. He had basically been sitting up there looking at nothing. Now, in 1900, he was almost 75 years old. He had been at this post for close to 45 years. That's how long he'd been on this island all by himself. All of the people back in Portsmouth who he knew, they had either died or they had moved away. And he had heard that because the United States government had now invested in electricity. We saw electricity was starting to go, and because it was new, the government was talking about the idea of taking these lighthouses and converting them over to electric lights. Furthermore, he now knew that Morse code could be transmitted wirelessly through radio waves. And so, eventually, what he was looking at is that this job that he had done his entire life, that he had dedicated his whole life to, was about to become obsolete. And most nights... He sat at the top of this lighthouse and he wondered what he was doing there. Nobody knew he was there. Nobody really even knew that he existed. Most people didn't care about what he did anymore. And he couldn't escape this thought that he had wasted his life. Because he could have gotten remarried. He could have gone out and he could have had more children. He could have had a really good life in Portsmouth if he had remained a fisherman. But instead, he'd given the best years of his life to this lighthouse. And he had done it because he wanted to honor his father-in-law's dying wish. And being a man of honor, what that means is you end up sacrificing things that you might normally, normally get in life. And as he was thinking about this, the thought just kept passing through his mind. Was it worth it? Was it really worth all the time that he had put into this? Because it's not like anybody knew what he had sacrificed to be there, but he knew And he had come to the conclusion that he should have done exactly what his predecessors had done. He should have gotten up from that desolate island, left it, and never looked back. So on the eve of his 75th birthday, he's sitting up in the lighthouse, and of course the light's rotating above his head, and he makes a decision. He thinks to himself, I'm done. I cannot do this anymore. And he thinks, in the morning when the sun comes up, I'm going to get on my boat, I'm going to go back to shore, and I'm never going to look at the ocean ever again. But that evening, as he's sitting there, and he's looking out into the darkness, he sees something that he hasn't seen for a long time. It's a ship off in the distance, and it's one of these cargo ships. You can tell it's about 40 feet long, and it's moving rather rapidly. The wind's blowing about 30 miles an hour, and they're headed straight for the lighthouse. And so 
in an attempt to just alert them to the fact that they should probably veer off one way or another, he starts using the Morse code light flashes. But he doesn't receive anything back. And he thinks, well, you know, I've gotten a little lazy with the whole wiping down the lens thing, so maybe I'll go downstairs and intensify the light. Maybe they can't see the light. So he goes down and he turns up the heat, gets the light up, goes back up and watches. Again, nothing happens. And at one point, when the light rotates, it actually goes directly across the upper deck of this boat. And he can see there's nobody steering this thing. And it's coming directly at them. And he knows exactly what's going to happen. It's going to smash directly into those granite rocks and it's going to sink. And when it came up, it hit this massive boulder. It just, it came off the side and the bow ripped open and it turned over on its side and it started taking in water immediately, and it was going to sink very rapidly to the bottom of the ocean. Marcus knew he only had a little bit of time, and so what he does is he stops the light from rotating, and he takes a mirror, and he's able to reflect the light from the lighthouse off this mirror down onto the boat that is sinking so that he can actually see what's going on. And then he runs as fast as his 75-year-old legs will take him down these stairs, the 131 steps to the bottom, and then he gets a rope and he ties the rope to a concrete pillar. And he takes the other end of the rope and he ties it around his waist and he runs out into the water. Many, many times before he had swum on the shore of Boone Island and so he knew exactly where all the rocks were even in the dark and he climbs over the rocks and he gets to the boat which is now tipped so far over that the railing of the upper deck is parallel with the water and so he gets on it and he starts shimmying along the side moving down and he calls out he keeps calling out is anybody there is anybody there can anybody hear me and at this point he knows he has about two minutes before this thing is going to be so far down that he can't do anything and he eventually hears at the back upper cabin that there's two guys calling out he can hear two voices and so he comes over and he gets to it and he can't really do anything except reach up and get to the handle which he turns and he pulls but of course gravity is forcing it down so he can only pull it so far open and he yells and he says I can't get in there for you you're gonna have to come to me and after what seems like an eternity he sees a hand come up and grab the door frame and then another hand and another hand and another hand and two men pull themselves up and out and they fall onto the railing and they reek of rum clearly they had been drinking and they had fallen asleep and so Marcus he takes off the rope and he hands it to them he says here's what you guys need to do you need to jump in the water and you're going to pull yourselves in to shore and one of the guys looks at him and says well what are you going to do he says don't worry about me I'm a good swimmer I can make my way back in so the two sailors they jump in the water and they start pulling themselves into shore but Marcus Hanna he does not follow them instead he begins to climb he climbs up on to the roof of the forward cabin, the only part of the boat that is still out of the water. And when he gets up, he stands up tall. He looks up at the lighthouse, which is illuminating his face. And from what those sailors recall of that evening, he said at the top of his lungs, it was worth it. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, 
and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.